scripture reading this morning is going to take place in the book of Genesis in chapter 44 and 45. I'm not planning to read the entire chapters. Uh, I'm going to start about the middle of Genesis 44 at verse 14. I'll let Jeff pick it up all, all over from there. In Genesis chapter 44 at verse 14, it says this. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. And let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a younger brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm him, uh, happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then, as his life is bound up in my boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Then Joseph could not control himself. Before all those who stood by him, he cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. 
So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father all of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after this, his brothers talked with him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Bob. Well, we head into this third, at long last, this third encounter we have between Joseph and his brothers. And in this third encounter between Joseph and his brothers, Joseph's finally convinced, finally convinced that they have truly changed as Judah offers himself as a substitute on behalf of the family. Let me pray for us. Lord, open your word Spirit, come upon us and give us what we need today for life and godliness and give us hope in the plan you have working through our entire lives. And we see that in Joseph's life. In Christ's name, amen. Well, so much transformation has taken place in this family. And now Joseph not only reveals his identity to them finally, but he also reveals God's greater purpose in their drama, in this story. So a quick review, Joseph's one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And now Joseph not only reveals uh, his identity, but he uh, reveals and, and, and they come to fulfill his dreams by bowing down to him as he told them those dreams earlier when he was younger. In jealousy of his father's inexcusable treatment of Joseph, in love and wealth, and because of Joseph's arrogant proclamation of dreams, the brothers in envy, do you remember what they did? They sold him into slavery in Egypt. Really broken family dynamics here. Really broken. A father who favors sons, sons who sell off the one. And through these many ups and downs, Joseph is changed by God to become the second in command in Egypt um, for the sake of stewarding the resources for a coming famine. And Jacob, his dad, realizes the famine has come. They're out of food, sends the brothers, but not his new favorite son, Benjamin, his only other child through Rachel. And Joseph alternates as the brothers come in these stories we've been going through, giving his brothers alternating sunny, gracious reception and a frosty, testing reception to break them open to the grace of God. Do you remember our quote? 
just how well judged was his policy can be seen in the growth of the quite new attitudes in his brothers as the alternating sun and frost broke them open to God. That's kind of the theme, idea we've been taking through these chapters, that Joseph is alternating sunny disposition and kind of cold disposition and testing to break them open. He doesn't let them know that he forgives immediately. That wouldn't have changed him. Hey, don't worry about it, no big deal. Although clearly in his heart, he's already forgiven or he wouldn't have so brilliantly seen to their growth and their restoration this way. And he doesn't also, on the other hand, give them immediate payback. That wouldn't have changed them either. They would grow bitter and hard in prison. He wants to help them grow and change. And so he tests them to make sure they have changed. Well, this time, Jacob gives in. And he sends his favorite son, Benjamin, with them And Joseph begins to set up the exact same test that he was in with his brothers earlier when he was younger. So today we're going to look at three kind of necessary ingredients to our climax of this transformation and restoration for these brothers. We're going to look at three. So hopefully you got your outline there. Have uh, Genesis 44 and 45 open. We're going to reference some verses. And let's take a look at our first ingredient in this final test. The final test is this. Will the brothers abandon the favorite son again? Will they abandon the favorite son again? Do you remember the first test was the money placed back in their bags of grain? Do you remember that? Well, on this second trip home, the steward places this royal cup. We're not quite sure what it is, but this royal cup in Benjamin's bag And Joseph accuses them of evil once they find it. Why have you repaid evil for good? And he says to them, whoever has the cup will be my servant. And we didn't read this section earlier in 44, but you might know the story. The cup is found in Benjamin, the youngest son's bag, the one who the father was afraid to send. Wait, they say, I mean, we we, we return stolen money. Would we return stolen money only to steal from you again? That would be really silly and foolish. This must have been an absolutely horrifying moment for them. This was their father's greatest nightmare. To lose his favorite son again, this, this, this would kill him. What is Joseph doing? He's really only interested in Benjamin here and, and what his brothers would do concerning him. What would they do? God is using Joseph here. Here's what he's doing. To recreate for them a really similar scenario, isn't he? To when he was a boy and he was the favorite and he got in the way of what they wanted. It's when they were tested with the other favorite son, Joseph. And so what God is doing through Joseph is here, he's recalling for them their guilt and evil and giving them an opportunity and test to repeat it. Here's what he's doing. He's uncovering their guilt. And thank the Lord what we see them do here is repent. This is big transformation moment for these brothers. Will they abandon the favored son again? I mean, think about it. It could be be easy to do. Here they are, far from home, 
They're really far from home. They could make up another story again. They could save their own skin. They could be back home and get in their warm beds with their wives and and be back with their kids. What will they do? I mean, it could be their life, their neck on the line. What will they do when they're shown their sin? Well, what do you do when you're shown your sin? What do you do when either God reveals it to you or or someone else reveals it to you? What do you do when you're shown your sin? What are we prone to do? Especially if it's in the context of a group like this was. Hide, maybe. Blame, shift. Maybe fudge the truth, deny, or maybe just stay quiet in in a moment. Well, here Joseph representing himself as the tough pagan Egyptian exercises his powers and he puts them in a bind. It's an impossible situation. There's no way out of this. And Judah says in 44.16, look at it again. What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we even clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. They had nothing to say. They had no excuse. For them, it was a moment of probably pure angst. And Judah collectively steps forward and, and confesses their guilt. He doesn't hide. He doesn't blame shift. He doesn't try to say, well, wait a minute. No, we didn't take that cup. Wait a minute. He doesn't say anything. But what is amazing in those verses, as you catch that there, is that he understands it was not Joseph who uncovered his guilt. It was not the steward who uncovered his guilt, but it was God. He says, God has found us out. And there's some double meaning there because they probably all know they didn't take the cup. They hadn't actually stolen the cup. But even though they hadn't actually stolen the cup, were they guilty men? They were guilty, guilty, guilty. It was God who was coming for them in this moment, this most vulnerable moment. And sometimes he tends to do that as he alternates sun and frost and makes us vulnerable and shows us something that we don't want to see. God was coming for them. Isn't it possible that in your own life, but he was using Joseph, so isn't it possible in your own life that when someone points out a wrong, a sin, even if it's a spouse, (laughs) that maybe, just maybe they're being used by God? Have you thought of that? Our natural tendency is to lash out at the one who brings up our sin or seek to discredit the one who, or, 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 yeah, but you, you did that. Or just to get angry and go, ah, yeah, I don't want to hear about that. You know, I I don't want to even hear about that. We have a natural tendency to defend ourselves. And, you know, even if you're accused of something you didn't do in that one instance, like the brothers here, you're probably guilty of it somewhere in your life at some other time, right? Has God humbled you to repentance for sin or an ongoing sorrow for your sin? Are you secure enough in the grace of Jesus Christ that you're saved by grace alone, faith alone, that you can respond to accusations with patience, humility, and pause and just say, well, maybe, maybe. 
you might be right. And maybe, just maybe God is using that person in your life like Joseph here to reveal things to you that you would never see otherwise and you would never have changed in your life. And get rid of it. Well, here they see it is because of their sin. They know it's because of our sin, our earlier sin against Joseph, that we're even in this predicament now. Their father had entrusted them with Benjamin against his desires because of what they had done to Joseph, right? I don't want to lose my final son, my son from Rachel I love. They were guilty. And in Judah's words, they acknowledge that Joseph is a tool of a higher justice. A higher justice. And they have this amazing Judas, kind of this public profession that he gives. It's really a moment of true change for these men. It's a great moment for them. You might look at it and go, that's their worst moment of their life. But when God reveals your sin to you and shows us who we truly are, do you know what we find at the other side of that? The mercy of Jesus. It's a great moment, actually. Is it hard? Yes. Does it hurt? Yes. Is it painful? Yes. Does it hit our pride? Yes. But who do we find there ready to hold and lift and pay for sin? Christ our Savior. So at their worst moment, it's actually their greatest moment. It's incredible. Well, they repent. They confess. Let's keep looking at what it reveals about them in our second ingredient of this restoration. The first one was the test to see if they'll abandon this favored son. The second one is Judah reveals something in his words. We're going to look at his words a little more. A solidarity has come about for these brothers that wasn't there. A transformation is happening in his own intercession and substitution. Judah kind of is the centerpiece in the middle of these two chapters who speaks the most. You remember, this is Judah now. Remember, this is Judah the one who was at the forefront wanting to kill Joseph. Well, in fact, they all were. But now we hear Judah's language. What shall we say to you? We can't clear ourselves. We are your servants. There's a solidarity there now with these brothers between them. They stand or fall together now. It wasn't there before. There doesn't seem to be a crack in the family dynamics. And so what do they do at this revelation of their sin, of the predicament with Benjamin now, the cup being his bag? They all grieve together in solidarity. They all grieve together in this situation. When Benjamin's discovered with the cup, verse 13 says, Then they tore their clothes And every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. Remember when Joseph's death was reported to Jacob? Only Jacob tore his clothes. No one else. Tearing clothes, a sign of mourning and distress. But now, now all the brothers, all the brothers tear their clothes. They are changing. They are grieving together as a loving family now. We're watching the men transform before our eyes. But just so we understand, this was not performance to gain favor with Joseph by these brothers. Let's look at his second speech in verses 18 to 34. 
We're not going to read it again. But he goes on to respectfully implicate Joseph, Judah does. He says, well, you asked us to bring him. That's why we brought him. You asked us to bring him, Joseph. And Judah goes on to basically recount the whole story. Did you hear it in there? The whole history again. But in so doing, do you know what he gives Joseph? The very first insight to what happened at home after he was sold. And he hears these excruciating words of what happened. They told his father he was dead. And he heard his father's heartbroken cry through Judah, his brother's words. And surely he has been torn to pieces. But Judah now also, so Joseph's changing too. He's being hit with this grief again. And the 20 years of being gone and his dad thinking he was dead. But Judah also speaks differently now. Now he speaks differently about the favoritism that Jacob had for Joseph and now Benjamin. And he actually cites that favoritism as a reason to let Benjamin go. Whereas the first time the favoritism was the reason to kill and send off Joseph, now to Judah and the brothers, it's the reason to let Benjamin go. He's our dad's favorite. Verse 20, his brother is dead and he alone is left of his his mother's children and his father loves him. He's my father's favorite, you know what? And the other favorite is dead. He goes, does a 180 on his view of his dad's favoritism. Remember, they are the sons of the despised Leah and the concubines. Remember, these were the guys One slept with his father's concubine, one with his daughter-in-law, and two others committed genocide, if you remember back in our Genesis series. These are the guys. But now they're able to come to terms with their father's favoritism and probably even forgive him. And they couldn't imagine actually what would happen to their father if they didn't bring Benjamin back, as verse 30 says, his very life His very soul, his very life is tied up in Benjamin. They realize he's his favorite. His life is tied up in this one. Please don't bring this sorrow to our father. They make their father's sorrow their own. They absorb their father's sorrow as they grieve. Can you see? Finally, transformation has taken place in this family. And it was through the ups and downs. It was through the trials. It was through the tragedies. It was through the suffering. These men have grown in humility and godliness through the sun and frost of life. You can almost sense something happening here. This new solidarity, this new transformation. They're going to become these people that would be the nascent people of God, the new people of God, the Israelites. I don't think they could be the foundation of God's people without this. It's changing them to become the father of the fathers of the nation. They'd forgiven their father his favoritism. They'd repented of their sin against Joseph. And now they would not forsake Benjamin, even though their life and freedom might be the cost. But Joseph needs one more thing. Just one more thing before revealing himself and reconciling with his brothers. And it's the very thing every single one of us needs. Judah offers himself as a substitution. 
Let's take a look at that for a few minutes. Thirty-three and thirty-four again of chapter forty-four. Judah says, "Now, therefore, please let your servant—that's himself, Judah—remain instead of the boy as a servant to my lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. Let all the rest go. I'll, I'll stay. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. J- Joseph, just just keep me." Keep me, let the boy go, let all the brothers go, I'll take the blame, let me be the one. Just, just let them all go, please. Joseph so badly wants to reveal himself. We know that, don't we? He's always crying and stepping away in the story, isn't he? Going and weeping in the, uh, you know, because his, his mercy's heated up, we said. He wants to reconcile but he cannot until he knows the final transformation is complete and revealed. He can't until Judah does what he does. Judah offers himself as a substitutionary sacrifice in Benjamin's place. Look, Joseph, put the blame on me. Take my life and let them all go. And that is when Joseph finally reveals himself. Judah, you, you, you would really do that? Guys, it's me. It's me. It's Joseph. Now we can be reconciled. Now we can come back together. Judah's substitutionary sacrifice was necessary for the family's reconciliation, just as Jesus was needed for ours. Do you know that Jesus is the descendant of Judah? Do you know that? Not any of the other brothers. Not Joseph or Benjamin or Simeon. It's Judah. See, Judah, he's carving a road that Christ would ultimately pave. He's walking in the steps of his greater son to come from him. Judah is with his substitutionary sacrifice. He offers his life and it saves the family. Jesus lost his life and it reconciled us. Judah's pointing us to Jesus here. You know, Joseph didn't just say, well, you know, oh, well, guys, don't worry about your sin. No big deal. Don't worry about it. He didn't say that. He didn't just make them pay, but someone had to. It's Jesus. Justice isn't thrown away in this world. It's put on Jesus Jesus stepped in and said, let them go home. I will pay. Let them have a home, Father. I will pay. Judah points us there. You see, the gospel is the ultimate sun and frost that will break you open to God, as that Kidner quote said. It reveals to us not only the depths of our sin, like like Joseph's brothers are getting hit right smack in the face with here. It not only does that the gospel, but at the same time offers us this gloriously sunny substitute in Jesus to pay for those sins. It's the ultimate sun and frost. What breaks you open to God and to change and to transformation as we're going to see. It's the gospel that gives you the humility to change. 
In that moment, there's no self-righteousness these brothers. We are guilty. It is us. God has found us out. It's the grace of God working in their hearts. To face trials, too. Not only the changes, but the gospel helps us face trials. Trials that feel like they're weakening us are actually strengthening us as they were the brothers here. That God can't be punishing you. Christ was your substitute. He can't be punishing you. Christ took the punishment. So as a loving father, he's actually transforming you. It's the gospel that can free you to forgive when you're wronged. Forgiven sinners forgive others. Judas substitutes himself and points to Jesus, our substitutionary sacrifice. And it brings reconciliation. But there's something else at play here too. It's our third ingredient. There's something else in play here that is bringing about this reconciliation. And Joseph mentions it four different times in his speech. It's it's the providence of God. And the providence of God in this moment frees up Joseph, actually, to feel and forgive. And it can do that for us, too. In chapter 45 now, they are incredible words from Joseph. But first, remember this, our definition of providence we've been going through the past few weeks. It's God's hidden work in the world, in history, and in your life. It's his hidden work that is behind the scenes, working through things that you can't always see in your personal life, in history, in the world. And sometimes that's hard to understand when you look at things that happen on scale of evil that we saw this week. It's so hard to reconcile. I sometimes think in my mind, because I can't see a reason for something happening, there's no way they can be one. But why would that be? Chapter 45, there's incredible words from Joseph, and here it frees Joseph to feel and forgive. How so? Let's look at verses, uh, chapter 45, verses uh, 4 to 8 again. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. This is after he said, I'm Joseph. And they came near. And he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be stressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. How can Joseph say in the same breath, you sold me as a slave, but God did it all? How can he say to his brothers, you sold me as a slave, but don't be distressed or angry with yourselves? Joseph understands on earth in this one moment better than anybody else God's providence. He knows that God had a plan that he was working the entire time, all through it. I mean, it took 20 years to get there, right? It takes a while to get there, 
for him, but he knows it. And the first thing it does, it allows him to feel, to feel. We shouldn't miss uh, Joseph's emotions or dismiss them. Compassion that he had, the heated up mercy we mentioned a couple weeks ago, was a means to reconciliation for Joseph. Compassion, and it is for us too. No community can survive without compassion. No community can survive without mercy. To have mercy on each other in the local church, in your marriage, with your children, with your friends, with your coworkers, to see each other with eyes of mercy. Many times, don't we view people as obstacles or means to an end? Or annoyances at the very least sometimes, don't we? Is it just me? I, no, we do. We need to see each other with the eyes of mercy and image bearers. Or there's a reason we become numb to these things that keep happening in the news too. We need to see each other with compassion and eyes of mercy. No community can survive without it. Whether it's a local church body or a family Many a business has been shipwrecked by lack of compassion and mercy for each other, or a town can be. The brothers, what do you think their response was? When he said, it's me, Joseph. What do you think they were, what was going through their mind? Yeah, probably I'm dead. <laughs> but did you see how quickly he says, don't be afraid? Right away. You sold me, but don't be afraid. He's so gracious to them. They were floored, actually. They were dismayed, it says, and they could not really understand what was going on. You see, Joseph's theology here was not just some heady doctrine, God's providence. It formed and shaped his very street-level actions and words. You sold me, God sent me. You sold me, but God sent me. He says it four times there just to make sure the brothers get it. God did this just to make sure. His larger context was of a world where God was in control of all things and it freed him up to feel for his brothers. It freed him up to have compassion for those who had wronged him. He understands it's a world where God is in control. Francis Schaeffer had an example where he liked to talk about as people in this world, he was a theologian and an apologist in the 70s and 80s and he had this example I talk about that we've done something horribly in the world. We've split the world into a two-story home. And, you know, our daily life, we live on the bottom story. You know, the kitchen's there, the living room's there, the TV's there. And it's kind of where we live our life. And the upper story is kind of where we've delegated and pushed God to, the second story. He says we turn the world into this two-story house. And what Joseph is pointing to us here. And God is teaching us is here is that it's all one story. There's no two stories in your life. God is working through everything. You sold me. God sent me. And God had been working this in his soul, like I said, for 20 years. If he saw them in prison, he probably wouldn't have had the same response. But he prayed and he wrestled with God about this moment. See, if you wait until this moment the moment to think about forgiving, you won't be ready. If you wait until the moment, 
It's the preparation. It's the applied theology along the way that makes these men ready for this. Where do you need to let God's providence soften you to someone who's wronged you? Where do you need to trust God's larger purpose in your life? Without this theology that God can work through all things, what are we left with? Fatalism? Bitterness? Or desire for revenge? And if God can't work through all things, even the hard things in your life, when you need him most, he's not available. He's not there. If he doesn't also work through, you sold me. God sent me. Because if God can't use those evil things that happened to you or the wrongs that have been done to you, then why trust him and forgive others? Why do that? But believers who see and embrace who God is and what he is up to as a larger plan in their life are freed up to feel and forgive. This wasn't a theology lesson Joseph was giving to his brothers to set them straight. It was a great comfort to terrified hearts. When do you find your heart terrified? Let it be a comfort for you today. Nothing comes into your life, and I'm saying this trying to believe that myself today. Nothing comes into your life that hasn't already passed through his fingers. So Joseph's life, one of the primary lessons of his life in these brothers what an exceptional great comfort to know that God had even used their sins to bring about his plan, to save the chosen family from sure death and famine. Now, that doesn't excuse their sin. That doesn't excuse our sin that God can use our mistakes. But it puts it into the context of a God whose plan cannot be thwarted even by our sinful choices. I like what Alan Ross says about it. He's, he's, he's Alanis, he's Balancer. He says, the brother's life was not what it might have been had they not sinned. Nevertheless, because of their sin and its pain, they developed a deeper appreciation for one another and a greater understanding of their sovereign Lord God. Had they but obeyed and followed God's plan, they would have enjoyed his blessings to the full and spared themselves and their family the pain. But in spite of their attempts to change the divine plan, Eventually, they found out that God's plan would triumph. Absolutely, there's blessing and obedience. And we're called to obey, and we're called to battle, battle sin, but you can't derail the plan of God. You can't derail it. Of course, the pain would not have come if they didn't so sell Joseph. Of course, the reconciliation would not have been needed had they not sold Joseph. But coming out the other side, they had grown. And God had used this too to deliver this family and the whole world and us. Can he not also deliver our families? Can he not also deliver you, use our brokenness and mistakes to make us more like himself and fulfill his purpose for us? He can. And what a beautiful picture as the chapter closes. Hurry, go get my father. Come, bring everyone, move here. The famine's got five years left. Bring all your children, bring all your things. You'll be provided for here. And he kissed all his brothers, verse 15 says, and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. 
Think about that conversation. 20 years times 12 brothers, 240 years to make up on. Think about that catching up. How is this possible? How can we really trust God's providence in our life when things sometimes go so horribly wrong? How is it possible to be freed up to feel and forgive when we've been wrong like Joseph? Joseph's so, so, so freed up. He's not in bondage to bitterness and revenge. How is this possible for us to find this freedom in God's providence and trust him and be able to say, you sold me, but God sent me. It's that the providence of God bound Jesus to the cross and he gave him the cup of wrath. There was a moment in Gethsemane when Jesus wrestled with the providence of God and his humanity. He too, remember, was one like Joseph sold for silver. He too who was one who was betrayed by his close friends. He too was one who had to submit to the larger plan of God. And it was God's plan. Take a look. This Jesus, Paul says in his first sermon, Peter says in his first sermon in Acts, this Jesus, he was delivered up to you according to the definite plan. It was God's plan. And the foreknowledge of God. And yet he says there, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. See providence in that verse there? You crucified, you killed. God planned it. You sold me, God sent me. In other words, Peter's saying there. Jesus in that moment in the garden, he wrestled with God and his humanity. He too wrestled like us with this idea of God's larger plan. And you know what? He could have given us up in that moment. He did say, this is too much. Is there another way? But he trusted God's providence. Matthew writes, and going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He said a little later to Peter, Put your sword away, Peter. Uh, shall I not drink this cup? God's given it to me. The Father's given it to me. Maybe I thought there was a plan. Maybe I thought there was a second plan. But his plan is what matters. Jesus said, they sold me, but God sent me. That's what he's saying. It was the cup of God's wrath. And I love how one pastor put it. He said, if Jesus Christ wouldn't abandon you in his darkest hour, and God could use the darkest hour in his providence, what makes you think he will abandon you in your darkest hour if he didn't in his he won't. He won't. You can trust him. And if you can take the most evil act ever done in history, the cross, and turn it into our freedom from bondage and sin, to sin and death, can he not free you up to trust him and free you up to live through life's valleys and forgive others that wrong you? He can. You sold me that God sent me. Let's pray. We thank you for this story, Lord.